0: So Money episode 811 Amy Nelson founder and CEO of The Riveter You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
1: One of the things that really spun me down this path was reading Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And it wasn't necessarily what was in the book um, that that did it. It was a footnote. There's a footnote in that book that says 43% of highly trained professional women in America off-ramp after they have kids. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I was like, if this is true, the entire system is broken. We all know it and we're not doing anything about it.
0: Like many moms, our guest today, Amy Nelson, did not want to quit her profession, but felt there were many forces at play keeping otherwise career ambitious women like her at home after having their children. And one of those major headwinds was the workplace itself. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnush Tarabi. This is a topic that I'm obsessed with how to keep more women working, if that's what they want to do. You know, upon announcing she was pregnant with her first child, Amy, who was an attorney at the time, noticed, you know what, my workload's diminished. I'm not getting as many interesting cases. And she felt that it was a bit of discrimination. It was unfair. She thought she was on track to become a partner, wondered now if it would ever happen given this corporate environment, this culture, this attitude towards mothers, working mothers. So she decided to do something about it. Today, Amy is the founder and CEO of The Riveter, a female-focused co-working space in Seattle. The company might be coming to a city near you. It's growing fast, secured over $5 million in funding, and it's expanding to more locations. And she has... Through it all, become quite the thought leader around all things related to women, work, motherhood, and feminism. I look to her as a big leader in this space. I'm a fan and excited to share her work and ideas with all of you. Here's Amy Nelson. Amy Nelson, welcome to So Money. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. I am so happy to connect with you. I've been following you actively on social media. I first learned about you after you wrote a really important piece in Forbes about your interpretation and un- disappointment, really, with the New York Times piece uh, it's actually a recurring piece in the weekend uh, New York Times and the weekend business section where they uh, follow a, a CEO and kind of give us a day in the life of a CEO with the hopes that it will teach other CEOs and other aspiring CEOs how to make things kind of work outside of work. And, and um, in, in this case, you were very disappointed in the portrayal and it kind of I, I like beginning here because I think it really captures the essence of like what your goals are, what your message is, and also brings us back to the Riveter, which I want to talk about. But tell me a little about what really irked you about this piece and what you think it says about where we are today when it comes to recognizing the, the wins of men and women at work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, so I'll, I'll preface this with, I am the mother of three young daughters who are aged four, two, and one. And I think, you know, I was a corporate litigator for a decade before I founded my company, The Riveter. And I often felt like I had to be an attorney like I wasn't a parent, um, you know, kind of not acknowledge that part of my life. And when we tell stories about our success and business and the world without talking about all of the other pieces that have to come into place for that to work, I think it's a detriment to all of us. I think it's a detriment, particularly to women, because until and unless we have a real conversation about how women do make it all work, and I, I say that to women because, look, I mean, women still are the majority of primary caretakers in America. Biologically, um, we play a different role in um, in bearing children, um, and so I think that you know women are still seen very differently in corporate America, and all the numbers tell us that. But so I think if until and unless we have a real conversation about how women parent and show up in the workplace, I think outdated ideas of how that should happen will remain in play. And then, mm-hmm. then we don't also force the conversation of how men are parents and show up in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so the, the New York Times column, it really it framed the, you know, the success of Chris O'Neill, who is an incredible executive. And this is this my column is not a knock on him. It was really a knock on how the New York Times, you know, wrote this piece. Um, But it was this incredible piece about how he went through his day and lived his life. And it mentioned that there were two children. And, you know, it mentioned these things, but it didn't talk about all of the people that helped Chris, you know, make this day possible where he can work and succeed and and live his life and all of the different kind of apps we use or all of the different pieces that we put in place to make it work. And I think that we have to do that if we want to have change in corporate America.
0: It was a really important feedback that you gave and hopefully um, it will inform them as they continue to profile men and women in the workplace. And I think, you know, from my perspective, Amy, I, I see you as someone who's become uh, an increasingly Uh, important voice, a leading voice on a lot of issues relating to motherhood and career. Has this always been something that you have been an advocate for or very vocal on or is it becoming more and more Sort of a sense of urgency for you as you build this company, and as you now, ha- like you said, you have three kids. So at this point, you have a lot of experience. Um, <laughs> you've lived I have your life,
1: yeah. So kids. <laughs> so.
0: Well, where, where does it um, come from? Where what fuels you?
1: So I think you know um, I've always thought about where women, where and how women exist in our society, and and wondered why we have all these differences, the like outcomes. Right? We're over half the population, but there are more. Fortune 500 CEOs named John than there are women, which like that is like a distressing fact. Um, and so I've always wondered how you change that. For me, you know, I was a corporate litigator before I, before I started my company and I worked on Wall Street. I was more often than not the only woman in the room and I succeeded in those rooms. And so I think perhaps in my 20s, I didn't think about this as much. And I think that's probably kind of endemic across society. We often don't think about a problem until we're in the middle of it. And I think we need women to be thinking about this from day one because, you know, the the gender pay gap, all of this, it all impacts us from the day we start working. Um, And when it really started to hit me, it's like I felt like I was perceived differently the day I announced I was pregnant with my first child. I felt like I, I was given different cases. You know, it was just, it was different, right? And so that's when I really wondered, like, where is this coming from? Because I don't feel like a different person. My work ethic hasn't changed. My ability to do the job hasn't changed. And that, to me, became the central part of my life of figuring that out. And one of, one of the things that really spun me down this path was reading Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And it wasn't necessarily what was in the book um, that, that did it. It was a footnote. There's a footnote in that book that says 43% of highly trained professional women in America off-ramp after they have kids. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I was like, if this is true, the entire system is broken. We all know it and we're not doing anything about it. And that's really, I think, I think it is one of the most critical problems of our time. I think, you know, we grow the economy through productivity and population. If we are losing all of these educated women, our productivity will never grow. And so there's so much that we could have if we found a way to keep women in the workforce. So what do we do to do that?
0: Right. Well, which brings us to your, um, your, your business and this amazing co-working space that you've developed. But, but just to layer on to what you said, I couldn't agree more that this, um, this trend and this increasing trend, really, the New York Times actually published some in- new data, academic data looking at the numbers of women college educated, career ambitious, arriving at parenthood and then their careers being interrupted because of the unexpected costs of childcare they weren't prepared for, how to navigate their careers and all of that, all of those important things that you kind of have to learn unfortunately like on the job. Um, But I do think that when women are not working, I mean all progress comes to a dead stop. Like we're talking right now about all these things that we want to accomplish, right? Like equality in the workplace, more women leadership roles in society, uh, at, name it. We need women and men in those conversations and in those leadership roles. And if women aren't working, that doesn't happen. But even more critical is that when women aren't working, they lose their financial footing, right? Like you need your own money. Right. That's, I'll go so far as to you say do. that you need to work for your financial security, for your own safety, <laughs> which is hard yeah, to, do. yeah, it's, it's hard to swallow that. Cause like, you're like, I have kids and I don't have the time and childcare is expensive, but, um, it is sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place and, and to kind of cr- create your own solution for this as part of the, this puzzle piece you've introduced, the Riveter. So let's talk about the Riveter. It's a very exciting concept as somebody who is a former WeWork member. I'm not really sold on the wing. I feel like there are a lot, what, you know, there's the market is very hungry for co-working spaces that really kind of address, check off a lot of boxes. And there's all different kinds of people who are now working out of a traditional workplace. What is the Riveter trying to solve? Yeah,
1: so I mean, we we really stand in the middle of a place like WeWork or a place like the Wing, both of which I think are doing a good job in the arena that they work in. Um, but WeWork is really built for you know, scalable companies or enterprise companies. I mean, you walk in, it's you know almost entirely private offices, and then the Wing is also fantastic, but um, you know it's uh, it's mostly open space and men cannot join as members. And so, what if you're a woman? Who works with people of other genders or, or you don't identify with a gender. And you need a workplace, um, where you can do all of those things, but that's really built for you. And the Riveter really stands in that gap, uh, to provide that future. I mean, if you look, we work industrious, no rocket space, convene, they're all founded by men and none of them have women on their corporate boards. And so we, we build what we know. We build things to reflect ourselves. And so I, I think, you know, I thought <laughs> that there should be women really building the future of work in a different way. And the Riveter does that by providing space that you know is a mix of private offices and open space. And then we layer on this very real community. And it's it's full of people who are in their second or third act, uh, you know, you know, in the pivot of their career, where a lot of them have left corporate America to start their own companies or to become freelancers. You know, women are starting companies in America five times the rate of men, which I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly exciting, but how do we fuel those businesses, right? And so we have lots of programming Everything from social media 101 to um, building out your, um, your pitch deck to how do you create your financial projections that will get you from year one to year two to year five. And then we have a lot of luminaries come in. And in the past month, we've been able to host Howard Schultz and Jane Fonda and Senator uh-huh. Tammy Duckworth. Um, and we've done all of this in 18 months. So we have uh, five locations across the West Coast and we're getting ready to expand even further.
0: That's incredible considering you started this while pregnant with your third child. You quit your job as a corporate <laughs> litigator. You raised this money. You've been expanding. Now you're bi-coastal, California. Wa- well, no, sorry, not bi-coastal, all West Coast right now. California, Washington, mm-hmm. um, Seattle, Uh What do you think was the tipping point? I mean, not that you are there yet. I think you have so much more ahead of you. Uh, You could argue there are many tipping points, but this idea, 18 months, so much growth. What do you think has been the winning pitch? Like, why are people so behind this?
1: You know, I really think that um, there are a lot of women who want to be taken seriously and want to talk to other people who are in the same stage of life or same part of the journey in their professional lives as they are. And I think the Riveter provides a place for all of those things. Um, it really resonates, right? If you think about a lot of brands that are built for women, um, we see a lot of a lot of pink, which is a great color. Um, but you know, and I think but I think there's a lot of opportunity to create something that says, look, we get it. You're building something really serious. We're here for you. We want to provide a space for you to host your meetings, to host your events, and to talk to other women who are in the same position. And that's really what we try to do. And I think it's resonated immensely. I also think, I mean, it's you know, it's interesting we've talked about the fact that I have three kids. Um, but I think there's so much maternal bias in America, and there are there's so much just kind of conclusory thought that women check out when they have kids, and it's just the opposite. The opposite is the reality. And so to even note that is really incredible, pow- incredibly powerful. I mean, I was, and we talked about the article I wrote about the New York Times column. I was shocked when that just went viral and there were over 300,000 reads of it in a couple weeks because I was really just talking about women in work. But there is a hunger for that conversation and for women in that position, which is my position, to be heard.
0: Maternal bias for sure. What would be your advice to a woman today who is a lo- obsessed with her career, college educated, you know, doesn't want to become that footnote statistic and lean in the forty-three percent of women who uh, become mothers and off-ramp indefinitely because they just don't know how to navigate it all or they can't afford it? What would be your top tip? You know, something that maybe you haven't, you don't think is is discussed enough or preached enough, like we know, obviously, you have to have money and, you know, love your job and have a support system. But what else do women really need to to plan for or know about before they arrive at motherhood?
1: I think we all need to hold corporate America's feet to the fire. And one of the ways that we can do that is by researching what their track record is in terms of of women in the workplace what type of parental leave do they offer? What do they offer when you return to work with breastfeeding? That's a huge moment in time when people leave is when they're not able to find a way to, you know, to continue to nurse when they want to and they return to work. Um, what what do they do in terms of flexible work options? How many women are in leadership? Do they talk about a pay gap, right? I mean, Salesforce talks very publicly about how they had a pay gap, a gender pay gap, and they fixed it, right? If I hear one more person tell me they'll take like 122 years to fix the gender pay gap, I think my head will explode because you could actually fix it tomorrow. Um, so I think we it's incumbent upon us to do as much research as we can to to choose to work for companies that are doing a good job. And then I think if we vote with our feet in that way, it will force other companies to consider these issues. And Thank sometimes you. it's hard to think about when you're 25 mm-hmm. or 26, and this isn't the part of your life yet, But it's, but it's important even then.
0: But at the same time, there are a lot of companies out there that they feel maybe they're doing fine without female influence and female leadership. You know, you talked about the places like WeWork where it's like built by men on all board male, all male board, excuse me. And so I want those companies, I want to hold their feet to the fire, right? I don't want to like Mm -hmm. ignore them and then just go work for the wing. I want to say everybody needs to – be accountable. How, so you think it's just a matter of kind of if we ignore them, they'll fall off the face of the earth <laughs> sort of thing? I mean,
1: <laughs> I mean, I think, like, I think, you know, I think, you know, right now we have really low unemployment and so there's a talent war. And so if, if we're choosing not to go work for companies that mm-hmm. we think aren't doing a good job with women, my hope would be that those companies would then reform their policies uh, so that they could attack, attract and retain talent. Um, I hope that's not wishful thinking, um, but I also think, you know, I, I think, it's, I think it's really important that journalists hold people accountable um, you know, we just, we just saw the the New York Times piece last week about Google, right, how they gave Andy Rubin a $90 million exit package after credible allegations of sexual harassment. That can't happen, right? And, right. and one of the ways that we create, we stop that from happening is by publicly holding companies accountable. Those are things that are really important that we do. I mean, look. This has to be such a multi-layered solution. I think that structural sexism, sexism structural racism, structural ageism—all of these things are the great problems uh, of today that we really have to tackle, and they're complex.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I love all your convictions around motherhood and career, and I'm really curious to dive into more on your your financial convictions. And a question that I always mm-hmm. like to sort of break the ice with all the guests when it comes to money is to share with us one of your money philosophies or something that you firmly believe in when it comes to your money and maybe uh, women and money.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing that's really important, um, entrepreneurs talk a lot about your runway and, you know, drawing out your financial projections so you know how much time you have. I think it's so critical to do that for your household. (laughs) Um, You know, we, my husband and I, my husband also works. um, And so we, you know, we have a monthly budget and we know what we can spend on childcare. We know what we can spend on food and sticking to that gives us parameters and helps us make choices. And I think that's really important and also helps us figure out what to prioritize, you know, saving for our children's college is a priority. So that's part of the budget. Um, And I think it's really important to, to treat it like it's your business.
0: You are the CEO of your family. I think that's—is that kind of how you see yourself and your husband as like co-CEOs of your family? Yes, we do.
1: Yeah, I mean it is like there's there's money coming in, there's cash flow, there's money going out, <laughs> and all of these things are really important. Um, so so I, I like I look at the financial, uh, I guess you could put it this way, the financial model for my family as much as I look at it for my business.
0: What was your upbringing like as far as your financial lessons learned and your Introduction to money was there a, a memory that really sticks out? Yeah, I think you know, um, uh, in terms of my upbringing, I had two parents
1: that worked and I grew up in kind of a, in a middle class, you know, household. Um, and I think the most important lesson I learned, right, was saving for the things that you prioritize. My parents saved for college, um, but I always knew that that would be it, right? That I would have to pay for graduate school if I wanted to go. And so that was something I always thought about and that I saved for because I was taught to save. And so I paid my way through NYU Law School and I did have to take out loans, but I was able to pay for some of it up front because I'd saved. Um, So it's kind of a culture of prioritize your spending, save for what you want in the future.
0: And now three kids, how old are they? Your kids. And and (laughs) have the money conversation started? Are they asking you about, are they asking you uncomfortable questions about money as most kids end up doing?
1: So my kids are four, two, and one. Okay, so, so no, now. <laughs> they have not started asking about money. But it's really interesting because they do see a consumer culture. You know, when when we if, if we break something or we run out of something, my oldest, who is four, Sloane, she'll say, well, you'll just go buy a new one or you can just go buy more. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to think about when I start having the conversations with her about, yes, in theory, I could just go buy more. But what does that mean? How do we make that choice? right how, how do we choose how we spend our dollars and so that's something i think those will be the early conversations that we have about it
0: yeah no it's 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 i think i that is mirrored in my family too i have a 4 year old and a 20 month old and the 4 year old um yeah it's sort of like there is no end to resources you know like you can uh-huh it, 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 so it's it's going to be an interesting lesson um, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll figure it out. I can count on my listeners to tell me. I'll, I'll just read more of your I work. think you'll No, you it out. need to give me some advice. Okay, yeah. We'll, um. we'll we'll just we'll stay in touch. That's how that's yes, going to work. We will. You know, what uh what was it like starting your own company at the stage that you did raising the money? What would you say was your so money moment to to date? Maybe we can kind of Zone in on that period of time when you were launching, first launching the Riveter. What was your biggest win? The biggest win
1: when we were first launching the Riveter, I think um, it was really, for me, the biggest win or the moment I remember the most was when we realized, you know, when I first came up with the idea, I thought about building one. And then, and I think this is really indicative of women and building venture scale companies is I called a friend of mine who was an attorney, a startup attorney, because that was not my expertise. And I told him about the Riveter and asked whether I should start an LLC or a C-Corp. And he took me out for a drink after, after we talked on the phone. And I wondered what he wanted to talk about. And he said, you know, why are you building one? Why wouldn't you build 100? And it just hadn't occurred to me that I could or that that was a viable path. And then I really dug into it, and I was like, "I'm capable of doing this. I can do this. This idea will resonate. If I think it will play in Seattle, where I live, this can work everywhere." And so that idea became something much bigger, and my life became very different. And that was a that was a money moment for me. Um, that was really important.
0: Yeah, go big or go home.
1: <laughs> it was, and it meant, and in terms of actual money, it meant a lot of things, right? Because that went from raising a small amount of money via The plan was to do it, you know, get crowdfunding or or one investor or two investors to to heading down a path where I would be raising millions of dollars. And that is a different path. It's one that is more complicated for women. The numbers tell us. I mean, all female founding teams in each of the past two years have received under 3% of venture capital dollars. Mixed gender teams do slightly better. They receive somewhere around the range of 15% of venture capital dollars. But that does still mean that the vast, vast majority of venture capital dollars go to all male founding teams. Um, and that's a real thing. And it's, I don't say that to complain, but I say it to, to note that like it's just something that's really different.
0: Mm-hmm. Which I almost see as an opportunity, right? Like the money's out there and we know the mm-hmm. statistics now. So use that to your advantage, right? People want to make change. Right. And I've actually talked to investors who are, looking actively for female companies, female founders to work with, and they feel like they're not being solicited enough uh, in some cases. So I think it goes both ways. I think probably more is there's a, there's perhaps a, uh, what do you call it? I don't know, like a bias or just a resistance to working we know there's bias, frankly, to working with female founders, especially mothers. Yes. Do they have the capacity yes. or do they really have the time? Are they committed? Give me a break. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I know it's ridiculous. We're the most <laughs> it's t-
1: so, yeah. like
0: time management is our thing. Okay. Because we, we know more than anybody else, how, how precious of a commodity that is. Uh,
1: no, I think that, I think we need to completely reframe motherhood as this incredible strength because it is, I mean, it teaches us to be better leaders. It teaches us to be more efficient with our time. Um, I think it gives us empathy in a different way that is critical to growing a business and i am so tired of people thinking of motherhood as a weakness because i think it makes us warriors.
0: There's your next article. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't already wrote written it, i think that's a, that's a book. That's probably i wrote about an article about how motherhood made me richer and uh-huh. i was like i can't scientifically prove it. Um, cause I'm lazy and I didn't look at the, all the research, but I have a feeling that, you know, like you said, the empathy, the time management, the, uh, the ability to kind of rank priorities like a ninja in your head, like you didn't before in your twenties is all super powerful, powerful traits of moms and dads who choose to go there. But I think it's very instinctive to moms, um, I will say. So what about failure, though? Let's talk a little bit about the dark side (laughs) of, you know, maybe trying to raise money for your company or in your personal financial life, a financial situation incident that you learned tremendously from.
1: Yes. Um, Wow. I think... You know, I will say when I started The Riveter, I didn't have a concept of how closely I would have to monitor my cash flow. Cash flow is king when you're starting a business, and it's really everything in the early days. And you need to really understand on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis what's coming in and what's coming out. And I had to learn some hard lessons about that in the early days. Um, It's not the sexy or the glamorous work but it is the day-to-day work that allows you to grow and to scale. Um, and so now, I mean, it was putting, for me, it was you know putting in place the pieces and the people that would allow us to be successful and also be very responsible with our money. I mean, there are a lot of companies that raise a lot of money to grow that really don't have any intention of getting to profitability. That's something that's really important to me is getting to profitability and getting to a place where the Riveter can continue to scale by self-funding. Um, and so... And so that's the path that we're headed down. It will take us a few years to get there, but um learning how to manage all of that cash flow has been one of the hardest pieces of building this business, but the most critical
0: mm. and are you getting help with that? Do you have an outsider? Of- yes mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yes, I am so um you know one thing you
1: learn as a founder is you hire is that you need to hire for your weaknesses and also hire to allow you to plan your strengths um And so I have an incredible COO who came from a venture-scale company where she was the vice president of global operations and worked with budgets around the world. And she's been fantastic at figuring out for us the best plan. Both in terms of reporting, in terms of budgeting, and then we have an excellent controller who helps us from the outside. Those are all big questions that you know I didn't know the answers to when I started. Is when do you bring on a CFO? When do you? Hmm. How, who do you work with to help you on the controller side? Um, and I think these are a lot of questions that everyone starting a business struggles with. And one of the things we do at the Riveter is bring those services to our members because we all have those questions.
0: Yes, lots of unknowns. We just have to charge ahead, like. I mean, the talk about closing the confidence gap, right? Like you just have to yes. <laughs> cross your fingers and jump. And uh, I guess that's part of, you know, the risk taking of being an entrepreneur. Um, it is November. We are, we are airing this episode in November. And as part of our partnership with our sponsor, Chase Slate, we're asking guests, what is the piece of financial advice you received that you're especially grateful for?
1: The piece of financial advice I received that I was especially grateful for was to save <laughs> and to diversify. Uh, we to keep our savings in different buckets, some that are riskier, some that are more steady. Um, and I think that's allowed us to grow our personal uh, wealth in a way that I'm really happy with.
0: That was a good answer. That was a very good answer. Um,
1: I will say, too, one thing that's been great is we started doing a little bit investing in startups, a little mm-hmm. bit of investing in startups. And if you're if you qualify to be an accredited investor in your household, it is an amazing way, especially as a woman, that you can support other women is to invest in their startups and, and take some risks. some mm-hmm. to face, Of course, with, you know, you know, with thinking deeply about it and researching the market. But. It's a. It's, we need more women to invest in startups. And just you can find an early-stage startup where you can invest as little as $5,000. And yeah. that's a great way to to learn to take risks in different asset classes.
0: I just invested in my first female-led startup. It's called Zeta. Congrats. Thank you. I'm really awesome. excited. I, I, I feel, I know that. I shouldn't get my hopes up, but I really feel strongly about this venture. It's called Zeta. And the idea is that it's a, it's a portal for couples to manage their money openly and have transparency, be able to manage all their accounts in one place and, you know, really have this. Have, use it as a platform to have important conversations. And um, the founder, Aditi Shaker, if you're interested, she's been on this episode and you can look Maybe her up, please. listeners. But um, I look forward to doing more of that as well. All right. Uh, let's do some so money fill in the blanks before I let you go back to your big, your big mission of helping to revolutionize w- women at work. <laughs> just just a small small little thing you're doing. Um, really appreciate you having. Really appreciate you being here. Um, okay, so if I won the lottery, the first thing I would do is
1: the first thing I would do if I won the lottery is fully fund. All of my children's college and graduate school education in, a, in, a, in an account.
0: Because they're going to college, right? You know, some parents email me and they're like, but uh, what if my son or daughter doesn't go to college? Should I open up a 529? Should I not even think about that because they shouldn't have a choice? I mean, what, what's your philosophy?
1: I am going to strongly encourage my children to go to college. Yeah. <laughs> it's my philosophy. <laughs> so <we're>, so <laughs>
0: they will be highly I also, incentivized. Like,
1: I, I want them to have, I, I really want to be able to pay for graduate school if they choose to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, I, I love where I went to law school. I loved my jobs after law school, but I definitely made choices based on the fact that I paid for law school and mm-hmm. that I chose to go to one of the most expensive law schools in America. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a, a, a big piece of it
0: that's a so money moment too paying your way through nyu law school nyu is undergrad is is expensive enough like i don't know what law school was like um
1: it was expensive
0: <laughs> it was a lot yeah Whew. all right uh one thing i spend on that makes my life easier or better is childcare. <laughs> that's right echo that um, when I splurge, like something you treat yourself with, I like to spend my money on. Travel and meals out. Mm-hmm. When I donate, I like to give to blank because.
1: Um, I am a donor with an organization that provides diapers um, to babies in need. You actually, parents actually can't purchase diapers through federal um, assistance, which is a really shocking fact. Um, And it's just really important to me that all babies are able to have diapers. It's a really basic need. I also donate to political candidates I support.
0: Rock on. All right. And last but not least, I'm Amy Nelson. I'm so money because?
1: I'm Amy Nelson and I'm so money because I have taken a big risk to build a really big company and change the world for women.
0: And thank you for being a risk taker. We really appreciate it. And P.S. The Riveter is named after Rosie the Riveter, right? A cultural icon of World War II. How'd you come up with that name?
1: It is. Yes. It's named after Rosie the Riveter from World War II. And I did that because that was really the one time in American history when women defined the workforce. And I think we're ready for that to be the case
0: again. All right. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. I will be following you, Amy, and we hope to send more people your way. Have a great holiday. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Amy Nelson and The Riveter at theriveter.co. And I encourage you to follow Amy on Twitter. Her handle there is Amy underscore Riveter. She's awesome. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com. We have the audio and the transcript, everything there for you for free. And if you have a question for me for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, if you want to co-host Ask Farnoosh, just let me know by clicking on Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money.